Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. My name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich, and I'm director of communications at Merrick's. Millions of people have taken to the streets of Hong Kong over the past weeks in opposition to an extradition law, but now also covering other issues on democracy in Hong Kong. Over the weekend, the situation escalated. Riot police have fired tear gas and rubber bullets at protesters in Hong Kong following a large pro-democracy rally in the city with more than 430,000 participants. I want to discuss the situation in Hong Kong, what could happen next, and the role of the media in Hong Kong with Yuan Chan. She is senior lecturer at the City University of London. Yuan worked as a journalist in Hong Kong, Shanghai and Beijing, and until last year she was senior lecturer at the School of Journalism and Communication at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Yuan, what happened in the weekend? Well, over the weekend there was a mass uh, demonstration, a rally, as there has been on every weekend uh, since the beginning of June, really, uh, in a protest movement that began as being against uh, an extradition bill that the government tried to introduce in order to allow the transfer of suspects and fugitives from Hong Kong to mainland China, and which many people see as being um, the removal of a firewall between the two very different legal systems and therefore being an existential threat to Hong Kong. Um, so every weekend there have been demonstrations and um, part of the reason that the protests have continued so long is because of um, police violence and brutality against protesters um, that has brought more people out onto the streets and uh, the week, this weekend was no exception. So after the uh, a peaceful march ended uh, on Sunday, uh, some protesters marched onwards to the Central Liaison Office uh, in Hong Kong and um, sprayed some graffiti um, on the walls in a move that will that has angered Beijing terribly. Um, and riot police used very forceful means to clear those protesters, including, as you mentioned, tear gas and rubber bullets. Um, and there were huge um, deployments of police at that site. Whereas at the same time, or you know, similar time, uh, right at the other end of Hong Kong in the New Territories in a place called Yunlong, um, there were essentially thugs uh, dressed in white t-shirts who went round on the MTR trains and just went onto these trains and started beating people indiscriminately, anybody wearing a black t-shirt. Uh, which is seen as sort of the uniform of the Hong Kong protesters, was uh, beaten. And also, from the reports that we've seen, a lot of uh, people uninvolved with the protests who just happened to be on the trains were, were also affected. So these guys were running around with rack, uh, bamboo sticks, with metal poles, uh, indiscriminately um, beating people up, including journalists. And um, for a long time, the police were nowhere to be seen. Um, so there's a lot of anger about what uh, many people feel is police complicity um, at worst and um, incompetence at best um, in allowing innocent Hong Kong people to be beaten by these thugs who many people believe are linked to the triads and to rural forces in Hong Kong with links to the triads. Um, the police then went into a village where many of these men had been seen to retreat to and um, but no major arrests were made and people feel that it's um, very um, 
not an even-handed uh, treatment of protesters and people who had beaten these protesters up. So it was a very bloody weekend uh, in Hong Kong. And the kind of level of violence that we saw in Yunlong is very shocking and quite unprecedented. What does this behavior of the police and their shyness to, to really react and enforce what they normally would enforce, um, what does it mean for their role? Well, it's not going to do anything towards um, improving really very bad, poor relations between the police and a significant portion of Hong Kong's population right now. Um, there was already widespread anger over the kind of violent police tactics used to clear protesters in early protests, earlier protests in this movement. Um, this is just only going to make things worse. Um, and, you know, the, the, the mistrust on both sides is so intense now. Um, there will be a widespread feeling among protesters that the, um, the sort of allowing of these attacks to take place is a, is a form of revenge against the protesters. This is how it's being seen. So um, it's really hard to see how ties could possibly be repaired between the two sides at this moment in time. You mentioned it already, the scale of the protests in the very beginning on June 9th really surprised everybody. And there was more than a million people going to the street, more than ever in the last years since the handover of Hong Kong took place. And we saw a brief occupation of the Lexco. And there was still a red line in the past. Normally, protesters never really entered the Lexco building. How would you describe the dynamic of this whole protest situation in Hong Kong and the demonstrations? Um, I think the storming of Lexco was, in a way, uh, we can see after the event that it was um, it wasn't a completely unthought out. Um, act of acting out um, after the you know there was an admiralty declaration was read out uh, in the Legco chamber, but also we saw that you know signs were put up outside the library saying please do not da damage the books, and signs were put up against uh, next to cabinets that held you know artifacts saying don't damage the antiques. And we saw that in the canteen, you know, where people had taken uh, drinks out from the fridge, they'd left money there and said, you know, we're not thieves. Um, so the, the very clear message is that, you know, this supposed legislature, you know, is a symbol of a, a sham democracy, essentially, you know, because we've had lawmakers being disqualified. And we also have the fact that um, not all the legislators are directly elected anyway. We have this very strange thing called the functional constituencies. We have this very odd thing called the split voting system, which means for any uh, legislation to pass, it has to get a majority both um, from directly elected legislators and functional constituency legislators who may um, be elected by you know less than 100 people. Um, so... You know, it was a very much a targeted attack on this symbol of what people see as being the root of many of Hong Kong's problems, which is this lack of democracy and accountability. So 
even though the Legislative Council storming at first, you know, many feared it would lead to uh, a backlash in public opinion to say, well, the protesters have gone too far. They've got they they've used violent means to to attack this building. Um, but I think a lot of um, people that were supporting the demonstrations, even though they would not have done that themselves, um, could recognise um, that the government had been totally unresponsive and uh, to their demands and have, has not listened to their voice and that they could see that at the end of the day it was damaged to property. It, the building was empty at the time except for police. It's not like it was a sitting you know, legislature. So it did not cause that shift in public opinion that maybe some people had, you know, in the establishment had been hoping for. And the media coverage? I mean, on the one hand, the, the state media tries to avoid coverage of the protests, and on the other hand, it tries to bring up the violent side of the protests. Would you say that it worked to a certain degree, or...? Well, it depends on who, which audience you're talking about. So to a mainland audience that doesn't have a full set of facts because the state media is heavily censored and all media is heavily censored before it gets received in mainland China, then I think those are really shocking images. Um, and, you know, it's really easy to paint the protesters as violent thugs uh, without the context. I think for a Hong Kong audience, people are very aware of what the context is. So obviously, those people who support the, you know, who are patriotic and pro-Beijing uh, will read it one way. But don't forget, a million people took to the streets, you know, against the bill. There was a second demonstration where the organizers say even more, close to two million people took part. That's a huge proportion of the populace. And those people would be more sympathetic to um, what the people who went into the ledge code did because they will understand the context of it. Um, in terms of the international audience, I think it's more of a mixed bag because I think that a lot of the time the analogy is drawn between the Legislative Council and people would say, well, can you imagine if people stormed Capitol Hill or the Houses of Parliament or, you know, um, but it's not really an analogous um, institution, in fact. And I think this fa that's kind of lost somehow in, in the translation to the Western media a lot of the time. So a lot of Western viewers might not understand, in fact, that this legislative council is not fully democratic and that it's been used in many ways to thwart people's aspirations. If we look at the um, requests of the demonstrators again, in the beginning you mentioned that it was against the extradition bill and Carrie Lam said really clear the extradition bill is dead but it's not withdrawn. Mm. So um, what would you say at the moment can the chief executive of Hong Kong and the um, Beijing government do to calm down the situation? It's really hard to say. It's a fluid situation. It's changing all the time, both in terms of um, the sentiments among the protesters which and, and the government's attitude. Um, the things that the government does at every step of the way will produce a reaction in the demonstrators. So... We're really at this impasse. It's quite hard to see what the way forward is. Um, the government so far has been really insistent that it's made as many concessions as it's going to make. That is not going to placate the protesters. How long can the city sustain this level of protest? Right? 
I don't think it can be done indefinitely at this level. So, so what gives? I mean, that is the question. I don't. I can't answer that question. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I think at one point earlier, if the government had announced that it was fully withdrawing the bill, um, if there had been a, a sincere apology, and there had been the announcement of an independent inquiry into the police tactics and actions. Um, that would have gone a long way to diffusing the situation. Would that be enough now? I'm not even sure. Uh, you know, people are once again calling for Carrie Lam to step down. At one stage in the movement, it did seem like people weren't that fixated on Carrie Lam because they realised that, you know, if you get rid of Carrie Lam, there'll be another Carrie Lam. Um, but at this stage, um, it feels like there has to be something very symbolic uh, and, and very a very strong message before people will be able to de-escalate. So um, it's it's really difficult to, to see where this is all going. Do you have any suggestions? What could that be? Well, I mean, I think personally, of course, I, I, I think the bill should be withdrawn and that there should be an independent inquiry. I think in any place with any kind of accountability, a leader who had overseen such an inept handling of the situation and let it spiral out of control to this extent would not be able to survive. <laughs> it's um, a peculiar, this the peculiar nature and distorted nature of Hong Kong's political structure that has allowed her to still be there. So it makes no sense to me. I mean, to what extent can she actually govern and have any credibility right now? Um, it's very questionable. Yeah, and you are currently living and teaching in London, and it's about the UK as well to maybe um, take a stance in this whole controversy on, on Hong Kong. What is your assessment? Is there a chance that the UK really takes more than a kind of rhetoric on that whole escalation of the situation? or? Uh, are they so busy with the Brexit and themselves? Well, they've made some noises. <laughs> and um, Jeremy Hunt has made some noises. Of course, Hong Kong people would like to see the UK doing more. Um, you know, they say, you are a signatory to this international treaty that is registered at the United Nations. I have asked politicians, what actual recourse do you have? and I haven't received any satisfactory answers. Um, I think what the UK could do is to take leadership um, in an international context. So the UK should be working with its European partners, as they still are European partners. Um, the UK should be working with Washington. Um, it, you know, it needs to be taking a leading role in speaking up for Hong Kong on the international stage um, rather than just being another voice. It's hard to see how it can do that given its own domestic context right now. And I think that you know, this issue of the UK and Hong Kong is really a demonstration of how the UK would be stronger in partnership with its allies. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. it already that it can't continue like that for a long time. Do you recognize a certain protest fatigue already or is it still... I haven't seen it so far. It is quite amazing how long it's gone on, but I mean, I think common sense sort of tells you that it can't continue at this scale indefinitely. So, you know, how's it going to develop? 
Mm. I really don't know. I would like to, to talk a bit about the media situation mm. in Hong Kong. Uh, you follow the coverage of the recent developments very closely. What was in the media and what was not in the media to really get a clear picture on it? I think the media has done a pretty good job of, of covering the protests. I think, you know, it's really highlighted the importance of having multiple platforms and of having independent media in Hong Kong. So a lot of the online um, independent news outlets have done a really good job on very limited resources of reporting on these protests and I think that's been really heartening and also that people have recognized the importance of this. So these, these organizations are usually always struggling financially but they've managed to raise a lot of money during these protests which will keep them going. So I think people have realize that it's important um, to pay for news if you know if you want to have an independent media you you have to pay for it <laughs> and and that is um, a very encouraging development actually i think that also in in 2014 you you saw that journalists were very um unenviable position where they faced hostility from the police and obviously from the pro-government um, supporters but also from some protesters who saw them as you know big media mainstream media your bosses are all business people with close links to Beijing you know and there was this feeling that oh you all self-censor anyway and stuff like this so there was quite a lot of hostility from all sides And I think that is different this time, partly because uh, journalists themselves have been attacked by the police. So the protesters sort of can, can see this and they, they realize that, you know, journalists have a job to do and that, you know, they are also suffering in order to do their job. And it's also brought a lot of journalists together in terms of um, resisting and, and uh, complaining uh, about police violence. So it's made people stand up together um, to defend press freedom in Hong Kong, which I think is, is very encouraging. So that, that's maybe one of the positives I, I would take away from that. Uh, one quite interesting development was also that the Mingbao um, employees, the staff, the editorial staff, had uh, issued a couple of uh, open letters um, distancing themselves from the newspaper's editorial. Uh, where the newspaper editorials were condemning only of one side of the violence, that being of the protesters. And the Mingbao reporters and editorial staff, uh, I think, you know, mainly because journalism themselves were the subjects of violence, um, really took issue with this and, and made a very bold statement against their own management. So I think it's been very interesting watching the media developments in, in these protests. I mean, when we look back uh, 10 years ago, Hong Kong was still ranked in this Reporter Without Borders ranking on place 48, I think, of mm -hmm. 180 territories. Now it's on 73rd, which is really the wrong direction. Did you expect that? Did I expect it? <laughs> I mean, I think it's really clear that there has been a deterioration. The ownership of media organizations, the co-option of media bosses, the fact that so many of them are have been given, um, you know, places in the CPPCC, uh, the, you know, the top advisory body, 
um, either a national level or provincial level. They've been, you know, wined and dined and, and given all the high-level reception from Chinese leaders, made to feel important and stuff like that. So um, that's really been a problem. And also the way that um, advertising has been withdrawn from any newspapers or news organizations that deviate or seem to deviate from the party line, um, that's been a real problem. You know, we even had the former chief executive doing a daily name and shame on his Facebook page of who has placed adverts in Apple Daily. It's quite extraordinary, you know. And news organisation owners have talked about how they've lost advertising as a result of uh, political pressure. And this is at the same time that the news industry around the world is facing financial pressures mm -hmm. from the rise of technology and the decline of traditional forms of advertising. So on top of that, there is this economic pressure that comes from political pressure. So it's a very difficult environment. When it comes to foreign journalists, I mean, we still remember the case of Victor Malay from the Financial Times, who was, well, kicked out of the country or out of Hong Kong for the first time that it ever happened to a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong. Um, are there any other cases like that? Not of visa denial yet, but I mean, the Victor Malay case was a very, very chilling case. I mean, I have to say, I didn't imagine I would see that in Hong Kong. I mean, having worked in mainland China and knowing that that was used against foreign journalists. It used to be the case that the people who tried to get a visa to work in the mainland and were denied it would come and work in the bureau in Hong Kong. That is definitely a very bad sign. Um, there was a case with the Wall Street Journal. There was an investigation. Yeah, I can't remember the exact details, but it was something like the Chinese um, intelligence authorities it was something like an offer to hack their emails or something like to get information th th that was another very egregious case mm. if you look on Hong Kong from the outside perspective what would you say how important is Hong Kong still for China I mean people like to say you know its GDP is now a significant lesser part of the whole of the Chinese economy Over recent years, you've seen companies move their HQs from Hong Kong to cities in China. But I think that Hong Kong is still important in terms of... Um, it, it still did um, have um, a different legal system that is definitely more trusted than the Chinese legal system. And there is also the export controls for a lot of technology, that there's a difference between Hong Kong and China. So I think that still makes it important as well, which is why it's quite interesting that some people in Hong Kong have been advocating for the US to no longer see Hong Kong as a separate customs and jurisdiction. That could have huge consequences. So I think it is still important, and it's still important also from a reputational and, and image point of view as well. China can do a lot of things in Xinjiang and people can talk about it, but they can't go there freely. And the people in Xinjiang can't speak freely. Uh, people in Hong Kong still can and people can still report from there. It's still open in that sense. So it's interesting to me that in recent weeks, um, you have seen more people internationally talking 
in terms of talking about China's authoritarianism, and they mention Hong Kong in the same breath as Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Um, this used to not be the case, and, and this is something that I've noticed increasingly happening now. So um, I think it is on the international radar now. Um, I think that's a good thing. So hopefully, I, I hope the world will pay more attention to, to what is going on in Hong Kong. Do you expect Hong Kong's autonomy to further erode in the next years? That's the direction it's going in, yeah. So no matter how... Well, I, I think that's why so many people have come out onto the streets and why so many people support the protests. It's because, um, as I said earlier, it's this idea that it's existential. It's the idea that if we don't do something now, um, we won't be able to in the future. There has been a steady erosion, and perhaps this was just the last straw. Last question, you teach journalism before in Hong Kong, now in London. What is the message you want your students to never forget? I'll never forget why you're doing this in the first place. You know, um, it is to seek truth and to report it and to minimize harm while doing so. So, I mean, I think that applies in every situation. It's an incredibly, incredibly tough environment. I think for journalists in Hong Kong, I think it's really, really important that Hong Kong journalists get to frame the narrative, get to tell the Hong Kong stories. Don't let other people tell your stories. Thank you very much, Yuen. I talked to Yen Chan, who worked as a journalist and senior lecturer in Hong Kong for many years. My name is Kerstin Lose-Friedrich. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>